ان الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا ومن سيئات اعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له واشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له واشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله اما بعد so this will be the final lesson inshallah to conclude kitab al-siyam the chapter of fasting and then after that We'll continue with the remainder of the ahadith and the other chapters. But this is the final lesson, inshallah, to conclude the chapter of fasting. So we reached the hadith of Aisha radiallahu anha, qalat, As-sunnatu ala al-mu'takifi alla ya'uda maridan, wala yashhada janazatan, wala yamassam ra'atan, wala yubashiraha, wala yakhruju lihaja, illa lima la budda lahu minhu, wala i'tikafa illa bisawm, وَلَا اَعْتِكَافَ إِلَّا فِي مَسْجِدٍ جَامِعٍ In this hadith then, uh, it is narrated that Aisha radiallahu anha, she says that the sunnah, when it comes to i'tikaf, the sunnah for the person who is doing the i'tikaf is that he should not go out to visit the ill people. As you're aware that otherwise, typically it is sunnah to go visit the poor people, uh, the uh, ill people, sorry. To visit the ill person. The one who is afflicted by some illness, to go and visit that person is a sunnah. As it's mentioned in one narration, حَقُّ الْمُسْلِمِ عَلَى الْمُسْلِمِ خَمْسِ That the right of a Muslim upon another Muslim are five things. And one of them is عِيَادَةُ الْمَرِيضِ To visit the, poor, the uh, sick person. To visit the ill person. But here it says that the sunnah for somebody doing i'tikaf is that he should not leave to go and visit the ill people. وَلَا يَشْهَدَ جَنَازَةً And neither should he witness the janazah. Again, as it's mentioned, that otherwise following the janazah procession to the burial is something which is a sunnah. الْجَنَازَةً But here it's mentioned that the person who's doing i'tikaf, then he shouldn't do that. Again, we'll come to all the details in the explanation, but this is just... The meaning of the hadith in general. وَلَا يَمَسَّ مْرَأَةً And that a person who is doing i'tikaf, then he should not touch women. وَلَا يُبَاشِرَهَا And neither should he have any type of foreplay or intimate contact. وَلَا يَخْرُجُ لِحَاجَةً And neither should he go out from that place of i'tikaf for any reason. إِلَّا لِمَا لَا بُدَّ مِنْهُ Except if there was something which you have no choice. It's a necessity. وَلَا اَعْتِكَافَ إِلَّا بِسَوْمٍ And there is no i'tikaf, it is not possible to do i'tikaf, except if you are fasting. وَلَا اَعْتِكَافَ إِلَّا فِي مَسْجِدٍ جَامِعٍ And i'tikaf cannot be done except if it is in a, uh, uh, like a, a, a collective congregational type of masjid. But the details of that will come to now in the explanation. So this hadith then, Shaykh Salih al-Fawzan, Hafizahullah Ta'ala says, هذا الحديث يؤكد ما سبق من أن المعتكف لا يخرج من معتكفه حتى ولا إلى العبادات المستحبة. This indicates that a person who is doing i'tikaf, he should not leave that place where he is doing i'tikaf for any reason, even if, if it was for types of worship that are normally mustahab. There are certain types of acts that are mustahab, they are recommended, they are good for you to do. Sunnah for you to do, you are rewarded for doing them. But when you are in i'tikaf, 
then even those acts are not a reason for you to leave the masjid or to leave the place to do them. For example, visiting the ill person. Or for example, uh, witnessing the funeral prayer and following the procession up until the burial. That is also something which is good and recommended for you to do normally. But in i'tikaf, this hadith says if you are doing i'tikaf, then you should not do those things. Typically though, like we said, typically outside of i'tikaf, visiting the ill person, following the funeral procession, all of that is something which has a great reward to it. However, if you are in i'tikaf, then you do not exit to do those acts. وَلَا يَمَسَّ وَلَا يُبَاشِرَهَا And a person is not allowed to touch the women, to touch his wife, etc. Or to have any type of foreplay or intimate contact. And that is taken from the statement of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the Qur'an. وَلَا تُبَاشِرُوهُنَّ وَأَنْتُمْ عَاكِفُونَ فِي الْمَسَاجِدِ And do not have any type of intimate contact with them. Do not have this foreplay with them. And you are in i'tikaf in the mosques, in the masajid. So an individual is not allowed to have that type of contact with the female. Because that is something which would cause the desire to come about. And there is something which would cause a means to something impermissible. Also, this narration indicates that it is not permissible for an individual to even lie, to lay down, to lay down with his wife during that time of i'tikaf. As the Shaykh says, وَلَا يُبَاشِرُهَا بِمَعْنَىٰ أَنَّهُ يُضَاجِعُهَا Either he lays with her, or يُجَامِعُهَا Or that he has intercourse, because all of that is impermissible. And that is the statement of Allah, وَلَا تُبَاشِرُوهُنَّ وَأَنْتُمْ عَاكِفُونَ فِي الْمَسَاجِدِ And do not have this intimate contact with them, whilst you are doing your i'tikaf in the masajid. فَلَوْ جَامَعَ الْمُعْتَكِفْ بَطَلَ اِعْتِكَافَهُ اِعْتِكَافُهُ so if somebody who is doing i'tikaf commits intercourse, then his i'tikaf is falsified. It is finished. لِأَنَّ اللَّهَ جَلَّ وَعَلَىٰ يَقُولُ وَلَا تُبَاشِرُوهُنَّ وَأَنْتُمْ عَاكِفُونَ فِي الْمَسَاجِدِ Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, do not do that whilst you are doing i'tikaf. فَيَتَجَنَّبُ النِّسَاءِ So a person who is doing i'tikaf, he has to stay away from women. فَيَتَجَنَّبُ الْمَسْبِ الْيَدِ أَوِ الْمُبَاشَرَةِ And he has to stay away from any type of contact with his hand or any other intimate contact. أي المضاجعة معها ومس جلده لجلدها أي that they may be laying together or that they may be contact with the skin all of that must be avoided none of that is permissible for an individual who is doing the i'tikaf then عائشة رضي الله عنها also said ولا اعتكاف إلا بمسجد جامع and there is no اعتكاف except that it is done in a type of collective mosque meaning here as the sheikh said Oh, firstly, the Sheikh mentions, إِنَّ هَذِهِ الزِّيَادَةَ مَوْقُوفَ لَيْسَتْ مَرْفُوعَةَ إِلَى النَّبِسَ سَلَّمَ This section of the hadith where Aisha radiallahu anha says that there is no i'tikaf except in a, in a big collective type of mosque, then that is something which is the statement of Aisha radiallahu anha. It is not something which was from the statement of the Prophet That is the statement of Aisha radiallahu anha. As for the statement, وَلَا اِتِكَافَ إِلَّا بِصِيَامِ 
and there is no i'tikaf that can be done except with fasting, i.e. that you must be fasting to be able to do i'tikaf. فَهَذَا مِنْ بَابِ الْأَفْضَلِيَّةِ As Shaykh Saleh Al-Fawzan says, that is something which is preferred. It is something preferred that you are fasting when doing your i'tikaf. However, as Shaykh Saleh Al-Fawzan says, لَا يُشْتَرَطُ لِلْمُعْتَكِفِ أَنْ يَكُونَ صَائِمًا it is not a condition that the person doing the i'tikaf must be fasting when doing i'tikaf. So if a person did i'tikaf whilst he wasn't fasting, it is still permissible. But if a person does i'tikaf and he is fasting, that is better. That is the opinion that the shaykh mentions here. However, this is another one of those issues where some of the scholars have differed, and they've said that in reality, if you want to do i'tikaf, then you must be fasting. That is another opinion of the scholars on this particular issue. However, here the shaykh, he mentions the opinion that it is preferred, and even if you weren't fasting, then it would still be permissible, but it is preferred and better that if you do i'tikaf, that you be fasting. As for the other statement that we mentioned where Aisha radiallahu anha said that it must be done in a mosque, in a masjid with his jami'ah. Jami'ah meaning that it is a masjid where the prayers are prayed in congregation. يعني تصلى فيه صلاة الجماعة The congregational prayers are prayed in that masjid. فَلَا يَعْتَقِفُ الْإِنسَانِ فِي بَيْتِهِ أو الْمَرْأَةُ تَعْتَقِفُ فِي بَيْتِهَا So a person cannot do i'tikaf in his home. And a woman does not do i'tikaf in her home. لِأَنَّ مَحَلَّ الْعِتِكَافِ masjid, Because the place for i'tikaf, it is the masjid. وَلَا يَعْتَكِفُ فِي مَسْجِدٍ مَهْجُورٍ لَا يُصَلَّ فِيهِ الْجُمْعَةِ وَلَا الْجَمَاعَةِ And a person is not allowed to do i'tikaf in a mosque which is, which is, which is not used, which is not fully used. So you have a masjid, for example, where the five prayers aren't prayed. People only turn up to pray maybe one or two prayers in the day in congregation. Nobody turns up for fajr, there is no fajr prayer in the mosque. Nobody turns up for isha, there is no congregational isha prayer in the masjid. It's neglected, that masjid. It's not, it's derelict in a way. It's not used properly for all of the congregational prayers. That type of masjid, the shaykh says you can't do i'tikaf in it. That's the meaning of it here, that's what this statement means. That you do your i'tikaf in a masjid which is fully used as a masjid, as a congregational place for the five prayers and for the Jum'ah prayer. That is what's mentioned. لِأَنَّهُ the Shaykh says the reason for that, why you cannot do i'tikaf in a masjid where the five congregational prayers are not done. Maybe you have some masjid somewhere where they only pray Dhuhr and Asr, nobody turns up for Fajr and Isha and Maghrib. That type of masjid you can't do your i'tikaf in. Why? The Shaykh says because in that type of masjid where the five congregational prayers are not being done, then a person who's doing i'tikaf there, how is he going to pray in congregation? Either he's going to have to abandon the congregational prayer and just pray by himself. Or he's going to have to leave and go to the next closest masjid 
to pray congregation and then come back to do i'tikaf where he is. If he does that, that means he's going to be leaving and coming back, leaving and coming back several times, all the time. Leaving for the congregation and then coming back, leaving to go and pray and coming back. That's not proper. That's not how you're supposed to do i'tikaf. You're not supposed to be leaving and coming back and leaving and coming back all the time. So for these reasons, the Sheikh says that you do the i'tikaf in a place where the five prayers are being prayed and where the Jumu'ah prayer is being prayed. Uh, the Sheikh has also mentioned, وَأَمَّا الْجُمْعَةَ فَلَا بَأْسَ أَنَّ الْإِنسَانِ يَخْرُجُ يُصَلِّيهَا فِي جَمَاعَةٍ لَأَنَّهَا لَا تَتَكَرَّرُ لَا تَتَكَرَّرُ كُلَّ يَوْمَ إِنَّمَا هِيَ يَوْمٌ فِي الْأُسْبُوعَ If there was a masjid, and sometimes you have this, you have some masajid, they pray the five prayers every day, congregation, but on Jumu'ah, the Jumu'ah prayer isn't done there. There are some masajid sometimes. Because you might have an area where there are 10 masajid in that particular area. In places like Saudi Arabia, you get this. You have maybe 10 masajid in one small area, maybe just 10, 20 minutes walking distance in that area. There might be five mosques, for example. Four of them are small ones, maybe the size of our masjid here now. Small masajid. But one of them is the big masjid in that area. What they normally do then is, that the small masajid on Friday, they don't do the Jumu'ah. For that area, which is all one same area, they all congregate in the big masjid for Jumu'ah. So the Jumu'ah is only done in that big masjid in that area, and the other two, two or three small ones in that same area, they don't do the Jumu'ah in them. That type of masjid, the Shaykh says, it's okay. You can still do the i'tikaf in those small masajid. Because there is five times congregational prayer in them. It's just that the Jumu'ah, then they don't do the Jumu'ah, everybody gets together in the big masjid in that locality and they do the Jumu'ah there. That's okay. The Shaykh says that's not an issue because you're only going to have to leave the masjid once a week on Jumu'ah to go and pray and then come back and pray the other congregational prayers in the congregation in that masjid which you're in. So that, the Shaykh says, isn't an issue. Then we have the next hadith after that. So there are some of the rulings about somebody doing i'tikaf. He should be doing it in a masjid where there are congregational prayers. On top of that, he is not allowed to have uh, intimate contact with women. There are some of the rulings that are mentioned within that hadith. The next hadith of Ibn Abbas, radiyallahu anhuma, anna al-Nabiya sallallahu alayhi wa sallam qal, laysa ala al-mu'takifi sayamun illa an yaj'alahu ala nafsih. In this hadith, Ibn Abbas, he says that it is not obligatory upon somebody doing a i'tikaf to fast, except if he makes that something himself that he does. This is something which clarifies the previous hadith to an extent, where Aisha radiallahu anha said, لا اعتكاف إلا بصيام There is no i'tikaf except if you're fasting. This indicates that the meaning of that statement is that it is preferable and better for a person to be fasting whilst he does i'tikaf, but not that it's a condition. That's what this hadith indicates too. That laysa ala al-mu'takifi siyam, it is not obligatory upon somebody uh, doing the i'tikaf to have to be fasting, illa an yaj'alahu ala nafsihi, except for somebody who chooses that for himself. So here the hadith indicates the same thing that it is preferable and better, or it backs up what the other hadith was mentioning and clarifies that, that yes, it is preferable and better that you are fasting when doing i'tikaf, but not obligatory. Although like we said, 
there is a difference of opinion on the issue and some of the scholars have mentioned clearly that you must be fasting when you are doing the i'tikaf and they have mentioned reasons why these ahadith cannot be used some of them are because the scholars have said they are weak but that is a difference of opinion on that issue فَلَوْ اِعْتَقَفَ وَهُوَ مُفْطِرُ فَلَا بَأْسَ بِذَلِكَ But Shaykh Salih Al-Fawzan says, if a person was to make i'tikaf and he wasn't fasting, then there's no issue in that. وَاعْتِكَافُهُ صَحِيحُ His i'tikaf would still be correct. وَلِأَنَّ النَّبِيَّ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَسَلَمْ اِعْتَكَفَ فِي شَوَالِ لَمَّا لَمْ يَعْتَكِفَ الْعَشْرَ الْوَاخِرِ فِي رَمَضَانِ قَضَاهَ فِي شَوَالِ one of the reasons the Shaykh gives is that on one occasion, the Prophet ﷺ didn't do i'tikaf in the last 10 nights. There was one occasion when the Prophet ﷺ didn't do i'tikaf in the last 10 nights. And then, to make up for that, for that act of worship, he did i'tikaf in Shawwal, the month we're in now. There's one occasion where it's mentioned that the Prophet ﷺ didn't do it in the last 10 nights of Ramadan, and instead he made it up. In the days of Shawwal, he wanted to do that act of worship to make it up in Shawwal. Obviously, Shawwal isn't a month where fasting is obligatory. It's not a month of specified fasting, obligatory fasting. So the Shaykh says maybe that is an evidence uh, that the Prophet ﷺ did i'tikaf in Shawwal and he wasn't fasting. That could be an evidence for that. وَأَيْذًا سَأَلَهُ عُمَرَ رَضِيَ اللَّهُ عَنْهُ أَنَّهُ نَذَرَ فِي الْجَاهِلِيَ نِعْتَكِفَ لَيْلَةً فِي الْمَسْجِدِ الْحَرَامِ فَقَالَ لَهُ أَوْفِي بِنَذْرِكَ There's another hadith which seems to indicate this position that you don't have to be fasting when doing i'tikaf. And that is that Umar ibn al-Khattab رضي الله عنه He said to the Prophet ﷺ that in the days of ignorance I made a vow. I vowed to make i'tikaf for one night in Masjid Al-Haram, to do i'tikaf in the masjid overnight for one night. The Prophet ﷺ said to him, go and fulfill your vow. The night time, is that a time when you fast? Or is the daytime a time when you fast? The daytime. Fasting is in the daytime, not the nighttime. So here when Umar ibn Khattab anhu went and did his i'tikaf at night time, it is therefore assumed obviously that he was not fasting. So the scholars therefore use this as an example to say that you can do i'tikaf without having to be fasting. But again, like we said, some of the scholars, they said it is an obligation. So these types of narrations, uh, they may say for example, that uh, this was at night and therefore it was an exception. Or they may say that it is possible to do continuation as we mentioned. But like we said, it's a difference of opinion. But these are some of the evidences that the scholars have used to say that it is not a condition that you must be fasting when you are doing i'tikaf. Then after that, وَعَنِ ibn Umar رَضِيَ اللَّهُ عَنْهُمَا أَنَّ رِجَالًا مِنْ أَصْحَابِ النَّبِيِّ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمْ أُرُوا لَيْلَةَ الْقَدْرِ فِي الْمَنَامِ فِي سَبْعِ الْأَوَاخِرِ فقال رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم أرى رؤياكم قد تواطأت في السبع الأواخر فمن كان متحريها فليتحرها في السبع الأواخر متفق عليه In this hadith of Ibn Umar رضي الله عنهما He says that there were a group of men from the companions of the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم who had a dream that Laylatul Qadr was on the 20 uh, was in the في السبع الأواخر 
in the final seven. فَقَالَ رَسُولُ اللَّهِ That the Prophet said, I see that your dream is united upon this, the last seven. So whoever is going to look for the night of decree, then look for it in the remaining seven. Here now the Shaykh says, مِمَّا خَصَّ اللَّهُ بِهِ شَهْرَ رَمَضَانَ الْمُبَارَكِ وَجُودَ لَيْلَةِ الْقَدْرِ فِيهِ That from amongst the specific things that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala specified uh, the blessed month of Ramadan with is the night of the decree, Laylatul Qadr. So Laylatul Qadr, it is in Ramadan. شَهْرُ رَمَضَانَ الَّذِي أُنزِلَ فِيهِ الْقُرْآنِ Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, the month of Ramadan is the month that the Qur'an was revealed within. Then similarly Allah said, إِنَّا أَنزَلْنَاهُ فِي لَيْلَةِ الْقَدْرِ That indeed we revealed it in the Laylatul Qadr. The Qur'an was revealed in the Laylatul Qadr. And we know that the Laylatul Qadr is in Ramadan. So therefore we know that the Laylatul Qadr or the beginning of the Qur'an it was revealed on Laylatul Qadr. And that is in Ramadan. And it is known as Laylatul Qadr. It is known as Laylatul Qadr. One of the reasons because of the greatness of its position and its rank. Because Qadr in the Arabic language, one of its meanings is status and rank. So that's one of the ways to look at it. Because of its rank and status, it is known as Laylatul Qadr. And also because it's mentioned because the decree uh, for that year is done in that night. It's also mentioned that worship in that night, al-ibadatu fi hadhihi layla khayru min al-ibadah fi alfi shahr. That it is better, better than a than a thousand months of worship, and that is a great virtue, and that is the lifetime of an individual. لِأَنَّ أَلْفَ شَهْرٍ ثَلَاثَ وَثَمَانِينَ سَنَةً وَزِيَادَةً. Because a thousand months is approximately eighty-three years. So a person who catches the night of the decree. Laylatul Qadr, it is as if he has been worshipping 83 years. So this is a great night that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has characterized with great descriptions. But when is it? Allah jalla wa ala akhfaha. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has, kidden, has kept that hidden. Has kept it hidden when the night of decree is. لأجل أن يجتهد المسلمون في كل ليال شهر because it is required so that the believers they strive in all of the nights of Ramadan حتى يحصلوا على فضل ليلة القدر so that they can then catch the ليلة القدر and get the reward of that فيجتمع لهم فضيلتان فضيلة قيام الشهر كله وفضيلة الحصول على ليلة القدر so they get two things فضيلة قيام الشهر كله وفضيلة الحصول على ليلة القدر that they are going to be praying all of the month and that they are going to catch the night of decree so whoever prays all of the months all of the nights of Ramadan then it is as if or for certain that he will have caught ليلة القدر if he prays every single night and he stands every single night of Ramadan then definitely he's caught ليلة القدر as for somebody who prays on some nights and he leaves some nights, then it's possible he may have missed it. وَقَدْ تَكُونُ فِي الْلِيَالِ الَّتِي تَرَكَهَا He might be, Laylatul Qadr might be in the nights that he misses. So this is the wisdom in keeping it hidden. That a person, he strives all the time 
for that virtue. If everybody knew when it was, then they would just work hard on that one night. But because people don't know when it is, then they have to strive all of the nights, the last ten nights especially, to seek out that night of decree. The Shaykh says, The Sahaba كانوا يهتمون بطلب هذه الليلة وتحريها. The companions, they were extremely enthusiastic in finding this night. And they gave importance to finding when the night of decree is. وَيَسْأَلُونَ النَّبِي صَلَى اللَّهُ فِي أَيِّ لَيْلَ هِيَا And they would ask the Prophet ﷺ, mean which night is it? وَلَكِنَّهُ لَمْ يُبَيِّن لَهُمْ مِنْ أَجْلًا يَشْتَهِدُوا فِي جَمِيعِ الْلَيَالِ But the Prophet ﷺ didn't clarify that to them. So that they would strive in all of the nights. Then a group of the companions saw a dream. أَنَّهَا لَيْلَةَ سَبْعٍ وَعِشْرِينَ That it is on the 27th night. فَقَالَ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَسَلَّمُ So the Prophet said, أُرَى رُؤْيَاكُمْ قَدْ تَوَاطَعَتْ I see that your dream has united upon this. Meaning that I think that your dream has united upon it being on the 27th night. All of you are viewing or dreaming that it is the 27th night. فَهَذَا مِمَّا يُرَجِّحُ أَنَّهَا لَيْلَةَ سَبْعٍ وَعِشْرِينَ So this is one of the evidences that makes it a possibility, a heavy possibility, a good possibility that it is on the 27th night. Because the Prophet ﷺ said that it seems as if all of your dreams have come together on it being the 27th night. So whoever wishes to look for Laylat al-Qadr, then look for it on the 27th night. But this is in terms of striving and giving importance to finding it on that night, but not with certainty. Because it's still possible. It may be in the other nights. But this night is the strongest or one of the strongest possibilities. That's what it means. It doesn't mean that it's definitely, definitely 27th. It just means that it's a strong possibility. So a person should strive on that night, but he should also strive on the other nights looking for it. The 21st, the 23rd, the 25th, the 27th, the 29th. But even the even nights, there are some evidences that indicate possibly that Laylatul Qadr could even be on the even nights. So a person, the best thing he should do is strive in the last 10 nights, all of them, the even and the odd, to make sure that he catches Laylatul Qadr. And that's why the scholars, they differed about when Laylatul Qadr is. It's not possible to identify one specific night. They differed onto the different statements of when that could possibly be. Then after that, عن معاوية ابن أبي سفيان رضي الله عنهما عن النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم قال في ليلة القدر معاوية ابن أبي سفيان رضي الله عنهما says that the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم said about ليلة القدر ليلة سبع وعشرين that he said it is the twenty seventh night. However, this hadith is موقوف. Meaning that it is the statement of the companion Mu'awiyah ibn Abi Sufyan radiallahu anhuma and not the statement of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. So therefore, it was the companion who was certain that it is the 27th night, not the statement of the Prophet sallallahu So that leaves the affair open once again. And the best thing to do is not to have certainty that it is upon that night. Yes, it is a heavy possibility 
that it could be on the 27th. But also the other nights of the last 10 nights are a possibility. So a person strives in all of those nights. Then, عن عائشة رضي الله عنها قالت قلت يا رسول الله أرأيت إن علمت أي ليلة ليلة القدر ما أقول فيها قال قولي اللهم إنك عفو تحب العفو فاعف عني عائشة رضي الله عنها says she says oh messenger of Allah if I knew what night the night of decree is if I knew ليلة القدر when it is what shall I say what dua shall I make that night so the Prophet said say اللهم إنك عفو Oh Allah, you are the one who forgives the sins. You don't punish the people upon them. You forgive them. تُحِبُّ الْعَفُوا you, you love to oversee those sins and to forgive them. فَعْفُ عَنِّي So forgive for me my sins and oversee my sins and do not hold me accountable for them. This hadith indicates the virtue of making dua on the night of decree. And the best thing that a person can make is this dua. Allahumma innaka afu wa tuhibbu al-afwa fa'afu anni. Oh Allah, you love this forgiveness of sins and overseeing the sins. Then forgive for me my sins. That is the best dua that a person could make on that night. And a person can repeat that dua on that night. Make it repetitively and uh, other types of supplications and worships and recitation of the Quran etc on that night and prayer also the final hadith then in the chapter of Sayyam عن أبي سعيد الخدري رضي الله عنه قال قال رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم لا تشد الرحال إلا إلى ثلاثة مساجد المسجد الحرام مسجدي هذا ومسجدي هذا والمسجد الأقصى in this hadith, the Prophet says that you are not to journey out, not to make a specific journey and a specific travel to any particular masjid apart from three mosques, which is the masjid in Mecca, al-masjid al-haram, the masjid in Medina, al-masjid al-nabawi, and masjid al-aqsa in Jerusalem. This indicates that a person should not make a specific journey out apart from these three masajid. The Masjid Al-Haram that Ibrahim alayhi salam he built. The Masjid Al-Nabawi that the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi salam he built. Masjid Al-Aqsa, the one that Ishaq, the son of Ibrahim alayhi salam built. These are the three masajid that it is sunnah for you to make a journey to go out and visit and to go and do itikaf in. As for the other masajid, then it is not legislated that you make specific journeys to go to them. Some people they say, I'm going to go out on a particular journey to a particular country to visit such and such a masjid. Then it is not legislated to do so. Legislated is to visit these three masajid and outside of that it is not legislated to visit any other masjid. What about though if a person left the masajid in his locality and traveled to go to a masjid which is a bit further away because it is a masjid upon the methodology of Ahl Sunnah wal Jama'ah whereas the masajid in his locality or not then is that something which is not permissible or is that permissible? In that instance, it's permissible. 
Because a person is traveling to that masjid and leaving the masajid which are in his locality because the ones in his locality are upon bid'ah and innovation and misguidance. But that masjid which is a bit further away maybe has to go an extra 10 minutes, an extra 15 minutes, but at least it's a masjid which is upon the methodology of Ahl Sunnah wal Jama'ah, upon the methodology of the Salaf, implementing the correct methodology, the correct understanding of the Qur'an and the Sunnah. So in that instant, it's permissible to go there. That's okay. Nobody's going to say you're not allowed to do that. Similarly, in Ramadan, when the people, they go out to different masajid because of recitation. They say that the recitation in my local masjid isn't good, so I'm going to travel 20 minutes, half an hour to some other masjid because that recitation is better. What do you think about that? No? Again, it depends. If all of the masajid are, for example, Salafi masajid, the local masjid in your area is a Salafi masjid. All the other mosques, the masajid in your area are Salafi masajid. Maybe something we'll see in future years, inshallah. In that instance, then it's not permissible to go traveling out to different masajid. You're supposed to stay at your local masjid. It's Salafi. Why would you want to go anywhere else? Even if the others are Salafi too. You stay with your local congregation. And it's not permissible for you to go around looking for the best voice. But if your local masajid are masajid of Ahlul Bid'ah, and there is a masjid somewhere further away, which is upon Ahl Sunnah wal Jama'ah, then in that instance you can go and pray Tarawih in that masjid. That's the same situation. And Al-Imam Muqbil, rahimahullah ta'ala, used to say that. If you have to travel to go to a Salafi masjid, then do that. Because it is better to pray in a congregation and in a masjid that is implementing the Qur'an and the Sunnah as it should be implemented. That's better than to pray in a masjid where they are upon innovation and they are implementing innovation. And that's why some of the scholars, they've mentioned the reason why this science of the jarha ta'deel, it exists, as some of the brothers were discussing before. That's one of the reasons. Because now, take this example. One of the scholars, he gave an example. He said, imagine now, you have something wrong with your car. Or, or an example which is the point of the, the, the point of the example is the same point. Imagine something is wrong with your car, there's some problem with it. And there are 10 garages, 10, 20 different car garages in Bolton in this area. You decide that because your car is broken, you're going to go to a particular garage on this road here. But all of your friends have been to that garage before and they all know that it's a bad garage. And every time you go there, they always mess up your car. So what are your friends going to do when you tell them, you know, my car's broken, I'm just going to pop into the garage on this road here. What are they all going to say to you? They're going to say, don't go. Why? Because it's bad. How do they know? They've been there. Maybe they had a problem with their wheel. One wheel was wrong. They went there and the guy fixed the wheel, but he messed up the other three wheels. So they've been to this garage and they know it's wrong and it's messed up and they don't do the work properly. Or for example, doctors. Imagine somebody in your family is ill and he says, I'm going to go and see such and such doctor. But you have already been to that doctor before and you know he's not a good doctor. 
And actually there was some investigation and he was exposed in the newspapers for being a bad doctor. What are you going to say to your relative and your family member? Are you going to say, well it doesn't matter, he's a doctor, let him go. He's a doctor at the end of the day. So what if he's been exposed in the papers that he made uh, a mess up in all of these surgeries and in all of these uh, diagnoses? What are you going to say? He's a doctor at the end of the day, let him go, it doesn't matter. Even though you're my relative, I'm not going to tell him, let him go. Or are you going to say what? You're going to say, don't go. Because he's a bad doctor. He was in the newspapers last week, he was exposed. He doesn't know how to give the medicine properly. You're going to tell your family member, are you not? Because you want good for your family member, you want good for your relative, you want good for your companion. And you know that there's harm if he goes to this particular doctor. Or you know there's harm for him if he goes to this particular garage, he's just going to lose his money. So you tell that person, that's natural. Is anybody going to say, no that's wrong? You shouldn't tell them, let him go to that garage. What's your problem? Let him go and check for himself. If he gets a problem in his car, he'll find out for himself, won't he? Let him go to that doctor. And if the doctor gives him the wrong medicine and he dies, then at least he's learned his lesson. Are you going to say that? Nobody will say that. Everybody will say, of course you warn him. Tell him you can't go to this person, don't go to him because he's a bad doctor, he's a bad mechanic. That's the reason why when it comes to the religion, when it's a mechanic, what are you going to lose? You're going to lose your car maybe. Maybe he messes up your car, you lose your car. Alhamdulillah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala blesses your money, you can buy another car. You go to the doctor, maybe he gives you the wrong medicine, you get ill for an extra week. Alhamdulillah, Allah gives you health afterwards and you get better. But you go to somebody who's teaching the religion and he teaches you wrong, then that wrongness, that bid'ah, that misguidance, it enters into your heart and maybe that will never exit from your heart afterwards. So what's more dangerous? For you to go and lose some money at a garage or to maybe get the wrong medicine and get ill for a week at a doctor or to go to somebody who's telling you about your religion. Who is wrong? Which is more severe? The religion. That's why the scholars say, just like naturally, you would advise people, don't go to this doctor, don't go to this mechanic, because they have errors. And nobody would think twice. And nobody would say to you, no, you're being harsh. And you people are always talking about refutations. Nobody would say that whatsoever. If you told them this mechanic is bad, and that mechanic is bad, and all of these mechanics are bad, go to the next city in Manchester, they're the good ones. Nobody would, would raise an eyebrow. They would say, okay, good. If all the mechanics are bad in Bolton, we'll just have to go to Manchester. Nobody would say a thing. But in the religion, what you have to recognize is that the religion, that is life for your hearts. That is not money, that is not your car. That is not just your health, it is your health. The health of your heart. The health of your hereafter, what's going to occur. So that is more important. So when there are people who are teaching incorrectly, and the scholars have advised and they've clarified these people are teaching incorrectly, then it's even more important that you have to advise your friends, your family, your relatives. This person, he teaches wrong, he teaches incorrect. He's upon innovation, upon bid'ah, upon hizbiyyah. Do not go to him, go to the good ones. That is logical. If you're going to tell your friend, don't go and get your car messed up, you lose 200 pounds if you go to that garage. But you're not going to tell him if he's going to go sit with a Sufi doesn't make any sense whatsoever. It's even more important that you protect your religions than it is that you protect your car. That is the reason why these refutations, they exist. And why scholars sometimes, they mention that. They say that this person, he's an innovator, he's a mubtadi'ah. That person, he is, uh, has wrong opinions, has wrong teachings, don't go to him. They say that sometimes because of that reason. To protect your religion. Just like you would say to your friend, don't go to this garage, 
because you know he's bad to protect him and his money and for his car not to get messed up, you would advise him like that. For the same way and even in a stronger way, because it's more important than religion, you advise each other about these affairs. And that's why refutations are necessary. And that's why the Salaf, they used to do them. And there's no shame, there's nothing to be embarrassed about with that. When it's done correctly and properly in its place, as the scholars they do. When they are done properly and correctly and in their place, then that is good. And that is from the religion. Do not be like these people who say to you, it's not allowed to refute anyone. If it's not allowed to refute anyone, then why are you saying this guy in the garage is bad? Is that a refutation? Why are you saying to the person, don't go to that uh, surgeon, he's a bad surgeon, he was exposed. Is that not a refutation? These are all refutations. This is jarh ta'adil. But in the context of the religion, it is more important. And that's the important thing to recognize with that affair also. So that in conclusion is the end of the chapter of fasting. Uh, with all of the various ahadith that Al-Hafid ibn Hajar has mentioned. Uh, and inshallah, from next week, we'll continue from the position that we left off previously before beginning Kitab al-Sayyam, inshallah. We'll conclude upon that point today.